0: This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots,
2: lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. There's a bunch of stuff that I want to share with you. Bernie and Medicare for all. Elizabeth Warren just rolled out a new tax plan this morning that is creating quite a buzz. And Julian Assange was just arrested in the United Kingdom remarkable stuff. I'll get to the Julian Assange stuff in just a few minutes, but first, I just wanted to go, how is Bernie going to pay for Medicare for All? And, you know, he laid it out. It's a very straightforward process. In fact, they published a working paper on this. He notes every industrialized nation on earth has already done this, has has made health care a right rather than a privilege, has provided universal care to all. And the consequence of that is that every other developed country in the world has lower infant mortality rates, lower maternal mortality rates, and a longer life expectancy than we do. And they spend on average about half of what we spend. So how come we're the village idiots here? Bernie says, number one, top 70% marginal tax rate on Americans earning over $10 million a year. You'll recall Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talking about this. A 77% top tax rate on estates above a billion dollars that's a significant estate tax, a tax on extreme wealth, a fee on large financial institutions, a 7.5% income-based premium paid by employers exempting the first $2 million in payroll. So small businesses, basically, if you're, you know, I'm running a small business here. There's nobody here making anything close to $2 million or even a fraction of that, even a tenth of that. And so, or I could go below that. But in any case, the, the 7.5% income is only going to be paid by big corporations with large paychecks to senior executives. And so, cool. And a 4% income-based premium uh, paid by employers exempting the first $30,000 in income. So, uh, you know, 4% is, I think right now, it's 2% that employers are paying. So it's very straightforward. He's done the math. It actually works. The Elizabeth Warren plan that was rolled out this morning is, uh, is, is a fascinating uh, issue with how companies are, you know, just this flim-flam that companies are doing. Um, it, it, she gave the example this morning on Stephanie Rule's show on MSNBC. She was talking about, she had this company that was reporting billions of dollars in profits publicly reporting billions of dollars in profits. Out of those billions of dollars in profits, they diverted billions of dollars to their stockholders in the form of dividends. They bought back some of their stock, which raises the pay of their employees, and they gave huge bonuses and paychecks, multi-million dollar uh, bonuses and paychecks to their senior employees because they had been so profitable. But when they reported to the Internal Revenue Service, They said, we had a terrible year. Our profit last year was zero. We made no money. We don't have to pay any taxes. And they didn't. They didn't pay any taxes. In fact, the number of major corporations that paid no taxes last year was higher than any year in recent history. So why is this? Well, obviously, the GOP tax scam is is a big piece of it. And so what Elizabeth Warren is saying is, if you are a publicly held company, and you report a billion dollar profit that you're then going to split up among your shareholders and your div and your executives and whatnot if you report that profit everything over the first hundred million dollars you're going to pay seven percent income tax on even if you've employed a thousand different loopholes to get your tax liability down to zero i think it's absolutely brilliant And Elizabeth Warren is, you know, I hope she gets some really good traction from this. So those are the two economic things that are happening. With regard to Julian Assange, this is absolutely fascinating. As you know, I have for years been a strong advocate of defending not just journalists, but acts of journalism. When a person is engaged in an act of journalism, whether it's one person tweeting something or putting it on a blog post or publishing it in some other way. This is like the pamphleteer's old Rusticus back in 1776. However it may happen, acts of journalism, in my mind, need to be absolutely 100% protected. And if the federal government, which has asked for the extradition of Julian Assange from the UK, based on what up until today had been a sealed indictment, if that indictment had said we want to prosecute Julian Assange for publishing the secrets that were leaked to him by Chelsea Manning or others, then I would be very, very upset. I mean this that that would be so wrong. But that's not what the sealed indictment says. What the sealed indictment says, at least from my read of it, and you know, I'm not a lawyer and I haven't read the details of the indictment. They're just now becoming available, but I have read several stories written in the legal press by people who have seen it or are familiar with it. What it appears is that they are charging, that the United States government is charging, that Chelsea Manning came to Julian Assange and said, I think I can get these files, or I can get some of these files, but I can get a whole lot more files, but I don't have the entire password. Here's the site that I need to get the password to, and here are, here's the piece of the password that I have. Can you help me? And then Julian Assange, according to this indictment, turned to his hacking team, either used his own skills or turned to his hacking team and said, how do we how do we get this password? And somebody, whether it was Assange or one of the people working with him, is unclear from what I'm reading of the indictment. And if it turns out, in fact, that a lot of the stuff that Assange has been publishing has been coming out of Russian intelligence, it might have even been Russian intelligence who finished the hack, right? Who who figured out what the password was. They passed that back to Assange. Assange passed it back to Chelsea Manning. Chelsea Manning then did the hack, got the information, gave it to Assange, and Assange published it. Now, as I said, he's not being charged for publishing the information, he's being charged for participating. In hacking a government website, a U.S. government website. Now, I am as pleased as anybody that the information that Chelsea Manning released got out. And I think we've got a serious transparency problem here in the United States. And I'm equally pleased that the information that Edward Snowden released got out. And in both cases, they got out via the vehicle of WikiLeaks. But if it turns out that Julian Assange took what was a noble idea, WikiLeaks, and has turned it into, has basically sabotaged it, has betrayed it, has turned it into an instrument of foreign policy by another government, or turned it into, the, into an instrument of political policy on behalf of uh, right-wing ideologues. And Julian Assange uh, you know, did come out of, you know, he grew up in this weird cult where everybody bleached their hair and all this other kind of weird stuff. Um, I don't know if you saw the movie about him, uh, the Julian Assange movie that came out a few years ago, but it was absolutely fascinating. I knew the guy who was the producer of the movie, and it was just amazing. But if Julian Assange has sabotaged WikiLeaks and turned what should have been a journalistic enterprise into basically a front for the Trump campaign or for Russian intelligence or for, you know, right-wing white nationalists in Europe or anything like that, then in my mind, that's an absolute tragedy. And Assange deserves no support or protection from us or anybody else. Now, if, on the other hand, Assange did not participate in helping hack U.S. government websites and merely received the information and published it, and has, you know, over time decided exclusively to publish information that's destructive to the United States, and not to publish information destructive to, say, Russia, or specifically even the Republican Party. I mean, we know that the Russians not only hacked the DNC, but they ha- according to U.S. intelligence agencies anyway, it seems that we know, that they not only hacked the Democratic Party, but they hacked the Republican Party as well the Republican Party hacks have never appeared on WikiLeaks. So I don't think it's time to pile on Julian Assange, but I really would like to see this evidence. I really would like to see some sort of a court proceeding. I think that we do ourselves and journalism itself a disservice by reflexively defending a group, a person, and an organization, they may well just be, you know, a a higher-profile version of Breitbart. Or not even that. Well, we need to find out. We need to find out. And, you know, strangely enough, I mean, Assange was charged in the U.K. with uh, jumping bail. And the penalty, the maximum penalty for jumping bail is five years in jail, although typically people get a few months. If he had simply served that in the U.K., he need not have stated... In the Ecuadorian embassy all this time. The Brits arrested him and they are in the process, it appears, of planning his extradition to the United States. So, you know, that's my take on Assange. I'm a big fan of journalism. I frankly, for a long time, was a big fan of WikiLeaks, now that we see that you know Roger Stone has been going over and hanging out with Julian Assange, I'm having some second thoughts about what Julian Assange did to WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks may still be at a great organization with great people working there and doing great work, but did Assange twist it or distort it or not? I mean, I think that we need to find out. And if they were engaged in journalism, then they need to be absolutely defended, and he too, all the way to the wall. And on the other hand, you know, if, if this was twisted, we need to know. Hey, thanks so much for listening to our podcast. One of our sponsors is the X-chair. And I got to tell you, they've got this new thing, Dynamic Variable Lumbar Support. they call called DVL. The X-chair's DVL is really designed to adjust for you. I mean, you know, the average chair, maybe it goes up and down, right? This thing really is totally customizable. Whether you're 5'2 and 110 pounds or 6'4 and 250, the X chair actually will adapt itself to you. And now with the introduction of the X basic model, there's an X chair for every body type and every budget. Take advantage of the X chair's new financing option to pay as little as 30 bucks a month to take your comfort and productivity to the next level for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. And X Chair is also on sale now for $100 off. So just go to X X-chair-tom, T-H-O-M, Tom, T H O M, X Tom, or call 1 844 4X Chair. Comes with a 30 day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. And if you use the code X Wheels over at xchairtom.com now, you'll also receive a free set of the new X with your chair. That's X Chair Tom,
0: you're listening to Tom Hartman.
2: John in uh, Los Angeles, listening on KPFK. Hey, John, what's on your mind today?
3: Well, I'm tired of hearing about the Russia stories. It's just ridiculous. This is a way for them. They've been caught. Who is our government them? has been caught. Uh, Julian Assange is our digital Martin Luther King. He reports on everything. He's, his integrity is amazing. But he doesn't report He's on definitely. everything, John.
2: He has not. WikiLeaks, you know, in He's fact,
3: reported on Russia. He's reported on lots of different things. He's reported on the Bushes. He reported on the Clintons. He reported on everything. It's just ridiculous. We need to support him. This whole thing about codes and all this other stuff, the military is running us amok. It's taking us down a road that we need to stop, and we need transparency. We need to stop arguing about whether the Russians are there or not and just demand transparency from our own government so that we understand what's going on so we can clean up this government because you can't clean up a house in the dark. I agree with you.
2: But that doesn't so, uh, mean that Julian Assange if, didn't... I absolutely understand you know, what you're saying. What I'm saying to you, John, is that breaking the law isn't the way to do that. that
3: but hacking but into government is, websites is not... The Constitution is the law. The Constitution is the law. No, hang on know? just a
2: second, John. Chelsea Manning made it very clear that she was perfectly willing to go to jail, right? Uh, Julian Assange, if he participated in the crimes that led to the release of this information, was not willing to go to jail. He's not a hero in that case. I'll repeat it again. If he was merely publishing this stuff, then he deserves our support. Absolutely. All the way. But if he was participating in the hacking of this information and is such a coward that he's unwilling to go to jail for that hacking, I salute Chelsea Manning. I salute Reality Winner. I salute Edward Snowden. They were all, Edward Snowden was willing to go into exile and upend his entire life. But Julian Assange wanted to live his nice, comfortable little life, his nice, comfortable little way, and yet he still wanted to participate in crimes. You can't have it both ways, John. You can't make a hero out of a guy who says, oh yeah, I'll help you with a crime, and then says, oh, but don't prosecute me, please, when the person that he's helping says, yes, I'll go to prison and serve seven years, much of it in solitary confinement. John hung up. Oh, well. (laughs) Anyhow, that's my point and I'm sticking to it. If Julian Assange is guilty as charged, and we don't know that, right? We have to assume right now that he's innocent. But if he is guilty as charged of participating in the hacking of government computers here in the United States, Chelsea Manning was guilty Chelsea Manning said in court, yes, I did this, and I am willing to go to jail for it. Chelsea Manning actually went to prison for this. For, for a number of years, she was held in solitary confinement for this crime that she committed. And when she got out, she said, you know, I'm glad I did it. I paid my price. It was worth doing. And now, I, actually, I believe she's back in jail now, you know, but that's a whole second round of stuff but she was willing to she she was willing to stand up and pay the price i mean i had a caller just a minute ago he said no julian assange is our martin luther king martin luther king was willing to go to prison he was willing to openly break the law and openly go to prison chelsea manning was willing to openly break the law to reveal that the federal government the united states government was breaking the law she believed breaking the law in the name of revealing the crimes being committed by the United States government was an appropriate price to pay. Edward Snowden was willing to accept exile. He fled to Hong Kong, right? He was willing to leave the country for the rest of his life. A guy in his 20s was willing to upend his entire life in order to reveal the crimes that were being committed by the United States government. I salute these people, right? This is, I mean, there is a nobility associated with that. And if Julian Assange, if the limit of his participation was publishing information that he received through the WikiLeaks website from people who are willing to go to jail for their hacking, then he absolutely needs to be defended all the way to the ends of the earth. On the other hand, If this charge is correct, and this is what we need to find out, if this charge is correct, that Assange actually helped anybody, I mean, you know, there could be a number of these things, but specifically in this case, Chelsea Manning, if it's correct that Assange helped Chelsea Manning hack into U.S. government computers and steal information, and he was unwilling to go to jail, then he's just a wimp. Right? I mean, if you're going to commit the crime, as Martin Luther King did, if you're going to commit the crime, but you're unwilling to serve the time, then it doesn't seem to me there's anything noble about that. You're just going to hide out in an embassy? I don't see, I just don't, I fail to see the nobility in that. And, you know, and I get that there are people who want to say, uh, oh, no, no, he's he's this noble wonderful maybe he is and if this is a a a witch hunt by the u.s government it needs to be revealed i would like to see them put their evidence out in the public view although i'm guessing they're going to hold it for court and this is stuff that we need to know right but let's be very clear The charge against Assange for which he is facing extradition is not publishing this information. That is not the charge. He is not being charged with committing acts of journalism. He's being charged with participating in hacking U.S. government computers by helping to come up with a password. So let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by Goatsfortheoldgoat.com and Loving What You Do, Ellen Ratner's new book. And on the line with us is former Congressman Bob Nay, the author of Sideswiped. Bob, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for joining us. Uh, You shared with me this morning an op-ed written by Scott Ritter who would know, right, who was the weapons inspector for the United Nations and who's been a guest in this program a number of times. I'm saying that essentially the Trump administration a week or so ago declared war on Iran and everybody's pretending that it's not even happening. You want to elaborate on that? You speak Farsi, you worked in Iran, you know Iran really, really well.
0: Well, thank you, Tom. And I've worked with actually two administrations on Iran, both Clinton and the Bush administrations, with Dick Snyder and former Senator Biden and a host of other people, where there's been attempts over the years to avoid a war, but to change behavior and have a chance for democracy for people. But what has happened now is the last step is gone, period, in this. There is no chance of diplomacy because the Trump administration has declared that an army, a nation, is a terrorist group, the army, and the Iranians are coming back through Zarif, the foreign minister, and they're probably going to accept an idea that, in fact, people that we have trained have committed terrorist acts on Iranian citizens uh, outside Afghanistan. Is This the Quds Force? Yes. And, and, and I want and to
2: explain what that is before we continue.
0: They have the Revolutionary Army, and right. and the Kurdish Force is the group within. We would call them special ops. Mm-hmm. I think on our side, right. we would do that, and our special ops have trained people. Some of those people we have trained. And I'm not saying that we directed them to do it, but some of the people we have trained have committed terrorist acts on Iranian citizens. Mm -hmm. And as a result, Iran says, fine, you're declaring our revolutionary forces as a terrorist group officially. We're declaring your soldiers as a terrorist group. So there is no room anywhere, number one, for any type of diplomacy when it gets to this point. Number two, the Trump administration has played into the hands of the clerics. The very clerics that don't want freedom in Iran are going to utilize this every single way with the Iranian people to say that we, in fact, are building the market for a direct war. And frankly, we are now leaving no room for error. Uh, There could be arrests of our soldiers, there could be arrests of their soldiers, there could be confrontations. And so the end result is that this article, which, as you know, appeared in a conservative publication, is just simply saying that, basically, war has begun. And I will argue this to the end about John Bolton, who has planned this, and now he finally got into a White House. He couldn't really get into the inner workings of the Bush White House, but he did the Trump administration. Bolton has called for, quote, nuking Iran. So they have taken away any opportunity for any form of diplomacy, and I think this is a powder keg lit.
2: Wow. How does this play out, Bob?
0: Well, of course, 2020, sitting commander-in-chief during an intense wartime situation, what do the citizens do? Do they change course?
2: In other words, you think that, you know, I I recall in 2010, and I think you and I have talked about this, in 2010, Donald Trump tweeted out this private citizen, Donald Trump, tweeted out that uh, expect uh, Barack Obama, President Obama, uh, two years into his administration at that point, to soon declare a war somewhere so that he can become a wartime president to get himself reelected in 2012. So obviously right. Donald Trump thinks that way. So you're suggesting that Trump is going to actually engage in open hostility, a hot war with Iran in, in time for I the election?
0: I think it could potentially happen. And again, he has somebody, you know, named Bolton, John Bolton, in the White House who has publicly advocated the use of nuclear weapons on an entire population over there. And that's the man, a national security advisor, who's, you know, pulling a lot of the strings and the shots right now. So what I'm saying is that if this continues to mount where we have no room, either side has no room, and certain things can happen, be it planned or by accident. We could be in the middle of a a very, very hostile situation that went from a deal we had and a disarmament to a buildup. Plus, we have foreign forces who are pushing us to do this, including uh, Saudi Arabia and Netanyahu himself, of course, who said that if we invaded Iraq, it would take care of Iran and actually made Iran stronger.
2: right. Amazing. Amazing. What else is going on in the world, Bob?
0: Well, sanji you know, uh, on, the, on the back story of it, uh, as I understand it, there was an expensive flat that the security forces of Ecuador had rented, Tom, and the uh, top officials in the government, some of them didn't even know about it. Then they got this bill for $55,000 uh, a month, and this bill for this security... Uh, that they were carrying out their own government, they didn't know, so I think it caused an internal upheaval in a political argument number one, and then Assange was uh, being accused of tapping into you know people 's computers over there, and they used to then put things into safes to hide it from him. So finally, that happened, and then the United States, I think, is an interesting predicament. When you extradite, you have to have a cause you can't change, and I think they went with the lighter password hacking versus trying to fight the issue of was he a journalist.
2: If they fight the issue of was he a journalist, they're going to lose. I mean, that, they lose. Yeah, and they deserve to lose. Amazing, right. Bob Nay, Thank you, Bob. Thank you. And good talking with you. If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority, and frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call one own gold That's one 888 ow 1-888-OWN-GOLD. 1-888-OWN-GOLD.
0: This is the Tom Hartman
2: Program. Our book today for the Tom Hartman Book Club is A Woman of No Importance, The Untold Story of the American Spy Who Helped Win World War II by Sonia Purnell. This is from the prologue. France was falling. Burned-out cars, once strapped high with treasured possessions, were nosed crazily into ditches. Their beloved cargoes of dolls, clocks, and mirrors lay smashed around them and along mile upon mile of unfriendly road. Their owners, young and old, sprawled across the hot dust and were groaning or already silent. Yet the hordes just kept streaming past them, a never-ending line of hunger and exhaustion, too fearful to stop for days on end. Ten million women, children, and old men were on the move, all fleeing Hitler's ranks, pouring across the border from the east and the north. Entire cities had uprooted themselves in a futile bid to escape the Nazi blitzkrieg that threatened to engulf them. The fevered talk was of German soldiers stripped to the waist in jubilation at the ease of their conquest. The air was thick with smoke and the stench of the dead. The babies had no milk and the aged fell where they stood. The hordes drawing overladen old farm carts sagged and snarled in their sweat drenched agony. The French heat wave of May 1940 was witness to this, the largest refugee exodus of all time. Day after day, a solitary moving vehicle weaved its way through the crowd with a striking young woman at the wheel. Private Virginia Hall often ran low on fuel and medicines, but still pressed on in her French army ambulance toward the advancing enemy. She persevered even when the German Strukas came screaming down to drop 110-pound bombs onto the convoys all around her, torching the cars and cratering the roads. Even when fire planes swept over the treetops to machine gun the ditches where women and children were trying to take cover from the carnage. Even though French soldiers were deserting their units, abandoning their weapons and running away, some in their tanks. Even when her left hip was shot with pain from continually pressing down on the clutch with her prosthetic foot. Now at the age of 34, her mission marked the turning point after years of cruel rejection. For her own sake as much as for the casualties she was picking up from the battlefields and ferrying to the hospital, she could not fail again. There were many reasons why she was willingly jeopardizing her life far from home in aid of a foreign country when millions of others were giving up. Perhaps foremost among them was that it had been so long since she had felt so thrillingly alive. Disgusted with the cowardice of the deserters, she could not understand why they would not continue the fight. But then she had little to lose. The French still remembered sacrificing a third of their young menfolk to the Great War, and a nation of widows and orphans were in no mood for more bloodshed. Virginia, though, intended to go on the road, wherever the battle took her. She was prepared to take whatever risks, face down, any dangers. Total war against the Third Reich might perversely offer her one last hope of personal peace. Yet even this was as nothing compared with what was to come in a life that drew out into a Homeric tale of adventure, action, and seemingly unfathomable courage. Virginia Hall's service in the France of summer 1940 was merely an apprenticeship for a near-suicide mission against the tyranny of the Nazis and their puppeteers in France. She helped to pioneer a daredevil role in espionage, sabotage, and subversion behind enemy lines in an era when women barely featured in the prism of heroism, when their part in combat was confined to the supportive and the palliative, when they were just expected to look nice and act obedient and let the men do the heavy lifting, when disabled women or men were confined to staying at home and leading off in narrow, unsatisfying lives. The fact that a young woman who had lost her leg in tragic circumstances broke through the tightest constrictions and overcame prejudice and even hostility to help the Allies win the Second World War is astonishing. That a female guerrilla leader of her stature remains so little known to this day is incredible. Yet that is perhaps how Virginia would have wanted it. She operated in the shadows, and that was where she was happiest, even to her closest allies in France. She seemed to have no home or family or regiment, merely a burning desire to defeat the Nazis. They knew neither her real name, nor her nationality, nor how she had arrived in their midst. Constantly changing in looks and demeanor, surfacing without notice across whole swaths of France, only to disappear again as suddenly, she remained an enigma throughout the war, and in some ways after it, too. Even now, tracing her story has involved three solid years of detective work, taking me from the National Archives in London, the Resistance Files in Lyon, and the parachute drop zones in the Haute Leur to the judicial dossiers of Paris and even the white marble corridors of CIA headquarters at Langley. My search led me through nine levels of security clearance into the heart of today's world of American espionage. I have discussed the pressures of operating in enemy territory with a former member of Britain's special services and ex-intelligence officers from both sides of the Atlantic, I've tracked down files that were missing, and discovered that others remain mysteriously lost or unaccounted for. I have spent days drawing diagrams matching dozens of code names with scores of her missions, months hunting for remaining extracts of these strange, disappeared papers, years digging out forgotten documents and memoirs. The book A Woman of No Importance by Sonia Purnell. On the line with us is Julio Rivera, writer for Reactionary Times, columnist with Newsmax, American Thinker, townhall.com, reactionarytimes.com is his website, his uh, Twitter handle is Oh Yeah, It's Julio. Julio, welcome back to the program.
1: Hey, thank you so much for having me, Tom. I was not completely aware of this development in Vanity Fair. I was under the impression we going to just talk the general. Should tax returns
2: be. Um, this is just an example. I mean, we know that there are dozens of examples of the Trump organization doing business with corrupt oligarchs all around the world. And with, in some cases, oligarchs who are associated with the governments. He's got a Trump Tower in Manila. I and mean, we've got a murderous quasi-dictator nothing, now running, running the Philippines. With,
1: um, Tom, there's nothing wrong with him doing business as a multinational corporatist. I mean, he's not the only person, newsflash, that's doing this. Now, if there's specific Evidence and if these sources are reputable and you have enough information to possibly subpoena the tax returns based on if they were engaged in illegal activities, then yes, under those circumstances, most definitely that would be something that we need to look at. I think the general question of him releasing his tax return is boiled down to the fact that he's so unpopular and people are going after you know uh, companies that sponsor conservative causes. You know, advertisers are always threatening to pull out of Fox News for one thing or another, that Trump kind of wants to protect people he's done business with in general to not have their names disclosed should, you know, tax returns be released because of unfair, you know, treatment by the media. That's you know, the weakest
2: fight- excuse I've ever heard. First of all, you you can release your tax returns in a way that doesn't implicate innocent parties, as it were. Well, here's my question for you, Julio. Uh, Are you asserting? I think that what he's trying to hide, I think what he's trying to cover up is the fact that he's not actually a billionaire, that he's been in debt, deeply in debt, ever since his last bankruptcies in the late 90s, and that he has never climbed out of that hole of debt, and that everything, you know, I mean, he's got literally billions of dollars in loans.
1: Yeah, he's never filed personal bankruptcy. He's been involved in over 100 businesses, and he's had four bankruptcies. I mean, if you look at the rate of businesses that go bankrupt in this country, it's over 80% of new businesses go bankrupt in the first two
2: years. So, I that's, mean, I think that's... It's an uh, uh, Julio, It's not true. More than 80% of businesses cease to operate in the first two years. And that's because the vast majority of businesses are things that people start, you know, hey, I've got an idea. I think I'm going to start a business for 200 bucks. I can incorporate. And then six months down the road, nothing happens, and they kill it off, or they just stop filing tax returns.
1: Um, it's got to nothing a to a a do with bankruptcy. Yeah, but listen, in a lot of these businesses he was a part of it wasn't necessarily de facto running it, he may have licensed Either businesses, he made a license, his name and his trademarks and his brand name to things like steaks and wine. So and if,
2: uh, if a real billionaire like Tom Steyer was running for president on the Democratic side and you had some you know, fairly compelling evidence, like you know members of his family telling the news media that Tom Steyer had been doing business with countries that you don't like, let's say Hugo Chavez in Venezuela and Fidel Castro in Cuba, wouldn't you be asking for, for Tom Steyer's tax returns? No, you're asking a general broad question based
1: on no real evidence. Yeah, has he done business with Venezuela? Has he done business? With, no, uh, to the best of my he, knowledge, he has not, not. But, like but if he
2: has, I mean, I think it's a reasonable question because I'm just asking you if the, if the shoe okay, were on the other foot, evidence- would you still be holding to this position? I said it at the very
1: beginning, like I, didn't, I wasn't aware of this money laundering accusation and if there's any validity to it, I have no problem whatsoever with the tax returns that are pertinent for those years being released so we could see actually whether or not, because that's a big accusation, you're saying money laundering. People go to jail for that, Tom. So you can't throw around loose accusations like that unless the sources and the, the actual stories are corroborated with other information.
2: Julio, uh, Trump has a uh, condo property that, that's worth around, as I recall, $12 million. And this Russian oligarch gives him, what, $54 million? Am I remembering this right? I mean, this has been you know, a while since this was reported. It was over $50 million for the thing. And it's like, how is that not money laundering? I mean, there's numerous examples of of Trump selling properties at wildly inflated prices to oligarchs associated with corrupt foreign governments. Doesn't that alarm you? Well, listen, if that company wanted to purchase that property for that price,
1: more credit for Trump for getting that much for it. Unless you show me evidence that as a result of that deal, Donald Trump did something for them, that there was a sort of pay-to-play element to it, then you're just speculating at that point.
2: That evidence it would be, be in his something tax something returns, Julio. Really
1: well, the tax returns aren't necessarily going to show anything. What would the tax returns show other than the fact that he he made it would a show the transaction
2: for that property. It would show the transaction that dirty money came in and it got made plain by being put in Donald Trump's bank it. account.
1: Listen, you like to frame everybody as a bankster, that's a capitalist and, and successful at it. How is that money? This guy's not money? a capitalist. He's a grifter. Oh, he's not a grifter. I mean, listen, he's been very successful. He's probably, he's done the things that he has at his disposal to do to stay on top of all the the transactions that he involves himself in. No, he's an
2: incompetent grifter. If he had taken the $430 million that he got from his daddy, which he lied to you about, by the way, he told you it was only a million. If he had taken the $430 million that he got from his daddy and simply put it, in an index fund that tracked the Dow Jones Industrial Averages, right now he'd be worth about $12 billion. All the evidence that I've seen indicates that he's probably about a billion dollars in the hole. He's incompetent. He no, was found guilty. He, he no, pled guilty he to fraud, for God's sake, Julio. you
1: are using information that isn't completely verified. We're not seeing his tax returns, so we don't know. People have been speculating that he's been devaluing his property on his actual tax returns and then overstating the value of the property. Well, we know yeah, that. I
2: mean, just the records that were released by a county in New York, in New York State, show that he took he took a that, property that was worth 10 or $15 million, declared that it was worth hundreds of millions of dollars in his statements this, to you know, Deutsche
1: Bank. Listen, you, We're not seeing the tax return, so we don't know These it. Aren't, no, no, no,
2: you don't need a tax return to know that this is the truth. You can see the documents of what he said to Deutsche Bank, and you can see the documents documents of what he said to the county. I forget which county. I think Westchester County in New York, where yeah, he, you know, the
1: county ultimately decides what the tax rate is and what the tax assessment is. It's not like Donald Trump. is. It's the
2: he buys that- a property for around seven or eight million dollars. This is like a decade or two ago. It's worth 10 or 15 million now. He claims to Deutsche Bank, as he's trying to get a loan for hundreds of millions of dollars, that the property is worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and he's going to use it to secure the loan. Then after he gets the loan, he goes back to Westchester County and says the property's not even worth $15 million. It's only worth eight or ten. Come on, Julio. This is a grifter. We've got a criminal in the White House.
1: The potential that you can sell individual units for... and and all of that comes into play when you're trying to determine the intrinsic value of a property this is one of his
2: estates this is one of his mansions it's not he's not selling anything
1: whatever it is because they're saying that this is widespread throughout all of his property holdings. so listen
2: so don't you want to know
1: general tax returns requesting the general tax returns of people who have proven to not do anything wrong i think is an unfair invasion of privacy for people subsequent to trump Who may run for president that i will say but in terms of the original thing that you brought me on here and then you said you know that that he may be involved in some type of money laundering situation if in fact he is then yes i would believe that okay
2: so we've got hopefully we just have a minute and a half left we've got 20 i believe it's 23 or 26 states now that have proposed legislation before their legislatures requiring a candidate for president of the united states in order to be on the ballot in those states to have disclosed 10 years of tax returns. Do you disapprove of that, or is that okay with you?
1: That's up to the individual citizens of those states. If they decide that that's what they want, that's our system, and it becomes law, and it should be honored. I personally don't necessarily feel it should be, but I wouldn't vote for that resolution, but if the people do, then sure.
2: Hmm. Interesting. So at a federal level, then we should have this as well, right? Or no.
1: Only if legislation passes through both chambers and is signed into law by the president. Sure.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's not going to happen with the Republicans in control of the Senate when you've got you know this kind of this level of hey, I'm corruption. I'm pretty
1: sure that if Hillary Clinton would have won, she wouldn't have wanted all those tax returns and all the Clinton Foundation money and all the. Haiti oh, she'd been putting
2: stuff. out. She had been putting out her. First of all, all the Clinton Foundation stuff is is completely transparent. It's a non nonprofit; they have to report that stuff. And secondly, she's been reporting her tax returns every year since 1990, 1991. Julio, thanks for being with us today. Julio Rivera, good talking with you. Thank you. Okay. And Julio's website, reactionarytimes.com. Hang on just a second. This is the Tom Hartman program. And you can tweet him at, oh yeah, Y E A H. It's Julio, J U L I O. We'll be back. You know, Louise and I just got back from Mexico, and uh, we took a week's vacation uh, with my brother and his family, but it was also a week that I could finish up writing this this book on voting that I've been working on. And while we were there, uh, my brother-in-law, or my brother and sister-in-law, rented a house that we all shared, and it, it, it had, you know, a, a Wi-Fi that was kind of public Wi-Fi. And, uh, you know, going to town, there's public Wi-Fi. At the airport, there's public Wi-Fi. Pretty much everywhere I was, I didn't know, you know, whether it was secure or not, but I was not concerned because Louise and I both use ExpressVPN. I have it on my iPhone. I have it on my computer. I, she, Louise has it on her laptop. I have it on my laptop. Uh, she has it on her iPad. Uh, ExpressVPN, it's one click. It secures and anonymizes your internet browsing. In fact, when we were in Mexico, uh, if it, you know, it, it l- would have looked to any website pretty much like we were in the United States because the A- A- ExpressVPN... Uh, apparently, it was just dropping our data and, you know, encrypted from where we were in Mexico right into the United States, you know, into a main pipeline and uh, completely safe, completely secure. Uh, with X- ExpressVPN, I can surf any Wi-Fi without worrying about my personal data being stolen. And it's less than seven bucks a month. For less than seven dollars a month, you can get the same protection that Louise and I have. And ExpressVPN has been rated the number one VPN service by Radar. It comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. You can protect your online activity now and get three months free at ExpressVPN.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. This is a product I love endorsing this product. I actually use it. ExpressVPN is something you should have. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M, to learn more. And thanks for supporting our program. Dr. Richard Wolf is with us here. Dr. Wolf is the author of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens Essays in the Global Economic Meltdown. He's the co founder of Democracy at Work, the website democracyatwork.info. His website, his personal website, wolf with two Fs.com. You can tweet him at Prof wolf, as in Professor Wolf. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thanks. Glad to
4: be here, Tom.
2: It is great having you with us. I've had, I've had a number of people call and ask questions about and try to get their wrap their brains around how our banking system works and why we should care. How does this influence me as just an average work-a-day person? What is fractional reserve banking and why should I care? How did this come about, even?
4: Okay, yeah, let's do a little bit the history because it always helps first of all we live in a monetized economy what that means is instead of me exchanging my shirts for your tomatoes i sell my shirts for money and so do you and i use the money to buy the tomatoes in other words money is an intermediary money is if i can say so what makes the world go around and it is the thing that you have to be very worried about why because if there's a scarcity of money then people can't sell what they need to sell to get it and then they won't have it and if they don't have it well they can't buy other people's stuff who then won't have people to sell it to and it could get very disorganized the economy and a lot of people could suffer In the early days of capitalism, we allowed every bank uh, that wanted to to write little IOUs, which we used as money. We did that here in the United States, so that if you traveled more than five or ten miles, you might have to exchange whatever money was floating around where you had started with whatever other money was floating around somewhere else. This was very cumbersome people didn't want to deal with that they wanted to have a common currency something they could use everywhere so that was solved by having a national currency but that too couldn't be done by private uh... interests private banks anybody who could issue a piece of paper saying i promise to pay well that piece of paper could go from one person to another to pay for things and that introduced the possibility that people would write these pieces of paper who didn't have anything to back it up so that if you weren't happy with it and you wanted to cash it in they smiled at you and said sorry we can't handle it So in the end, make a long story short, in order to have a money supply without which a modern economy can't function, it wasn't safe to allow private interest to do it, so the government took it over. I'd like to drive that point home so that the silly people who think that there's such a thing as an economy without the government uh, are brought to understand that something as absolutely fundamental as the money supply in every country is is a government responsibility in a very large way Okay, with that as the background how does the system then work basically as follows we understand that in a modern economy somebody has to be in charge of the money because it's it's a universe of its own and so we allow a kind of partnership on the one hand the government that literally prints the money, like those bills that we have in our wallets or the coins in our pockets. So the government is a major player here. But we also allow, in the United States for sure, and in most capitalist countries, we also allow a private banking system. By the way, many countries, they don't even allow only private banks. They have a mixture of government banks and private banks so that the government has even more control. But in the United States, we basically have a private banking system, and so it's a partnership. The best place to see it is in the Federal Reserve, where you literally see, that's the name of our central bank, a kind of partnership between politicians' uh, selections who put them on the board and banks who get together to elect their representatives, and together they manage the money supply. All right, last step to answer the big question you asked. Why does it matter to you and me? Well, here's a simple reason. If the combination, the partnership of the government and the banks pumps too much money into the economy, then there's too much money relative, and all that too much means is relative to the amount of goods and services there are available to buy. If there's too much money, more than the goods and services, then the people with the money bid up the price of goods and services, and we call that an inflation. And if you're a person who hasn't got your hands uh, on the new money coming in, if you're not a big bank or a big corporation or somebody wealthy, well, then a, a rising price, if your income doesn't go up, is a disaster for you because you can't afford to buy things anymore. So you have a very strong interest in there not being an imbalance between the amount of money looking for goods and services relative to the amount of goods and services that are looking to be sold uh, for money and the major job of the federal reserve like of central banks in every capitalist country is to monitor very closely the balance between goods and services on the one hand and money on the other and try to keep them in a relationship so we don't have a collapse of prices down and we don't have an inflation of prices zooming up and you know in some countries they do that job pretty well in other countries they don't they do it sometimes and then now at other times but it's very urgent for us because we live in an economy where money is the intermediary it's what we get for the work we do and it's what we have for the goods and services we want to buy
2: okay so my understanding is that in a fractional reserve system that when banks say a bank has a million dollars in reserves that they can then lend out $9 million based on that, um, because they have to have 10% kept in reserves, and that that additional nine, or the additional eight million, let's say they can lend out 10 million, the additional nine million is literally money that has been created into the money supply, the overall money supply. And it would seem that that reserve limit, the government specifying you have to keep a certain amount of money in reserve for your loans, would be one of the ways that the government would regulate how much money can be loaned into existence by the banks. If they increase the reserve limit, it's gonna cause the banks to loan less money into existence. If they reduce the the reserve limit, they'll loan more money into existence. And that would be one of the ways that they could regulate that. Is that an accurate understanding?
4: Partly. Let's do it a little bit more slowly. I think you'll get the gist of it. Here's the anxiety. What banks always have done, and they still do it, is they solicit people to give them money, to deposit their personal money, their business money into the bank. And the reason the bank wants you to do that is they have the right to lend that money out in other words they take your deposit and they say okay you have an account here it's worth ten thousand dollars and you can now write checks against it but while you're doing that we're gonna lend your money out and charge a lot of interest a lot more than we pay you for putting the deposit in here which is how we make our money the federal government steps in and says well this is a little scary because if all the people that are running around writing checks were to do so tomorrow, and the people who they gave the checks to said, okay, pay me to the bank, the bank couldn't do it because it just lent out that money in order to make its income. So there's a danger of what used to be called a run on the banks when the people who put the deposits in want that money out because it's their money. So what the government does is say to the bank, you can't lend out all of the money that depositors give you you can only lend out a portion the reserve requirement is simply the phrase that defines what portion of the money deposited in your bank you have to keep back in reserve to cover any risk that people want their money back uh so that you could at least cover it that plus the capital you have that you use to start the bank is the money that a bank uses when there's a run on their assets because for example a rumor circulates that the bank is in trouble that got so bad in american history that we had to create another government agency the FDIC the federal deposit insurance corporation where the government basically says in the event that all the depositors want their money back and the bank has lent out so much that it can't get that back from the people it lent to well the government will step in and make good to the depositors uh... what the bank itself can do that happened in two thousand eight on a big scale in the united states the government had to step in and guarantee that the people who had deposited in all the banks in the united states the big ones that had gone effectively bankrupt that people wouldn't have to panic because the government would simply step in print as much money as necessary and hand it out to all the depositors so they wouldn't be uh... destroyed so the government steps in, controls the amount you have to hold in reserve, and then crosses its fingers, because even then, if the rumors got bad enough, if enough depositors really got anxious, then even the government's ability to do this would become questionable and if the government pumped in vast amounts of money then the anxiety is in the rush to save the banks they might put in more and we get the inflation problem because the extra money pumping in by the government together with what was already out there could exceed what it is safe to have in our system so the game here is to hope cross your fingers and hope that the economy doesn't have the kinds of problems that could make people suddenly wanna get their hands on money because if that happens, first the bank and then the government itself might be exposed as unable to solve the problem.
2: We have just 15 seconds. Do you see that coming, that day coming?
4: Absolutely, we came close to it in 2008. Everybody assures me that the government would step in and print Endless amounts of money. We've been doing that in effect for 10 years, and everybody wonders when that moment will come when we overshoot the mark.
2: Remarkable. Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co founder Democracy at Work, his most recent book, Capitalism's Crisis Deepens Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown, democracy at work.info, rdwolf.com, and you can tweet him at profwolf. Dr. Wolf, thank you so much for dropping by today.
4: My pleasure. Glad to talk.
2: Thank you. I look forward to our next conversation. Tom Harmon here with you. Let's check in with Geeky Science for a moment here. Yes, indeed, there is a new member of the human family. This is fascinating. In a cave on the island of Luzon in the Philippines, they found 67,000-year-old remains, which is not that long ago, right? 67,000 years ago, the descendants of all modern humans were spreading out of Africa, spreading across the planet and they're calling it Homo luzonensis, and after Luzon, the cave that they were pulled out of, they appear to be about four feet tall and they're distinctively human. So now we have the Denisovans, who were discovered in 2010. They lived in Siberia. They were small, shorter people as well. You've got the uh, Homo naledi. These skeletons were pulled out of an African cave in 2013. You've got uh, Homo florensis, the hobbit, who was found in Indonesia in 2004. You've got Homo neanderthalus. You know, I did one of those 23andMe, and I actually have Neanderthal genes, right? And so, you know, we've interbred with them. Apparently, people with, of Asian ancestry might have interbred with Denisovians. I mean, this is just fascinating stuff. I wish I had a time machine. And then you wonder, you know, 67,000 years ago, was there the equivalent of Fox News? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Boy, this is amazing. Laura Clausen reporting over at Daily Kos. Rupert Murdoch's New York Post all but called for violence against Representative Ilhan Omar, counterposing an out-of-context quote from the Muslim American Congresswoman with a picture of the World Trade Center burning on 9-11. As Representative Rashida Tlaib, the uh, other first Muslim woman in Congress, tweeted, the New York Post knows exactly what it's doing, taking quotes out of context and evoking painful imagery to spread hate and endanger the life of representative Omar shame on them and shame on Rupert Murdoch Whew. amen to that Donald Trump now is referring to the Mueller investigation as treason and calling democrats traitors and calling for and this is apparently what uh, Bill Barr was doing yesterday before congress when he said yes i think there was spying do you have any evidence no i have no evidence but i think there was calling for an investigation of the investigators. If that doesn't chill things, I don't know what would. It's getting weird out there. It's getting really weird. And now it looks like these tactics that are used by authoritarian regimes like China, where if you're a Chinese citizen and you want to get certain kinds of information and you go to the internet and try and look it up, you find that your browser has been blocked from looking at that information. Tiananmen Square, for example, you just, you know, it's not even available. Sorry, didn't happen. It's been excised from the memory of the nation by virtue of essentially censorship. And it looks now like Betsy DeVos is trying to do the same damn thing over at the Department of Education. On the line with us is Nandan Joshi. He is an attorney with Public Citizens Litigation Group. Citizen.org, of course, is the website. Nandan, welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. So tell me the story. What's going on here?
5: So in the last few months, Public Citizen discovered that the Department of Education had been blocking our website, www.citizen.org, from their Wi-Fi networks and their internal network. The only information we have is from people who have tried to access our website. What happens is they get an error message when they try to access citizen.org that says that the web page you have tried to access is, quote, in violation of your Internet usage policy. And then it labels our web address as one that belongs to an advocacy organization. There are various websites that they do not block. Are they blocking
2: access to FreedomWorks or, you know, the the Koch brothers right-wing websites?
5: Well, we haven't tried those. We've tried the Chamber of Commerce, and that's accessible. Now, to be fair, we've also tried the ACLU, and that's accessible. So this decision to block our website um, seems somewhat um, arbitrary. Now, public citizen has been a vocal critic of a variety of departments' activities under this administration. We have sued Betsy DeVos and the department when they tried to delay implementation of what's known as a borrower defense rule. Uh, We were successful in that. Uh, In December, we issued a a report called the Teach Grant Report that criticized the department for various errors we thought they were engaged in in implementing their Teach Grant program, which is grants to teachers. Now, we don't know if that's the impetus of the, uh, the department's decision to block our website or if there's something else going on. We're hoping this lawsuit actually brings out some of the truth to block websites because the web address belongs to an advocacy organization, which is the information the user receives when they're denied access. That would seem to be a content or viewpoint basis. You would
2: not think so. Nandan Joshi, the attorney at Public Citizens Litigation Group, citizen.org is the website that's being blocked by the Department of Education. Nandan, if you find out if other agencies are doing this, would you let us know? Come back and visit us again. Absolutely. Great. Thanks so much for being with us. Nandan Joshi with Public Citizen. Citizen.org, of course, is the website. John in Florida. John, we've got a little less than a minute left in the show. What's on your mind?
3: Okay. Thanks for taking my call, Tom. I think you're exactly right about the fact that I was listening to the Laura Coates show on a different channel earlier, and she brought up the same exact point that you brought up. Is he just a journalist or is he an acting politician of some sort? Or did he... Did he provide information to gain access to one particular candidate or against the other? And I think the fact of the matter remains is you know that will be judged, that will be determined by a judge or whatever. And I'm I'm just happy that they went in it because people are trying to say that oh this is unconstitutional or this is inter- this is international disparity because they went in and pulled him out, even though the Honduras. Um, uh, Good, 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 good. government said, nope, you can come get them. Ecuadorian. That's yeah. Article 21 or 22 of the Geneva or the Vienna Convention. Yeah,
2: no, I got it, John. He was no longer granted asylum, essentially, or protection by the Ecuadorians. Thank you for the call. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll continue the conversation. Same time, same place. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It's something that you've got to participate in. So share the good word about progressive media, get out there, get active, tag, you're it.
0: You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.